Hello, I'm Shane Kilgelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit, the podcast of the cybernetic Marxists. Uh, and in this episode, we're going to be looking at a book uh, by the title of Markets in the Name of Socialism, The Left-Wing Roots of Neoliberalism, um, which was uh, written by Joanna Bachman and uh, released in 2011, I believe. Um, it's, a, um, it's a it's a bit of a weighty tome, but it's really interesting. Um, the historical yeah. analysis, yeah, the, the historical analysis here is great. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, the... the the sort of general gist, I think, um, is that that like neoliberalism wasn't really entirely a project of the right. Uh, the right instead co-opted ideas uh, or hijacked ideas from a, a decades-long dialogue that was going on between economists on both sides of the Iron Curtain and uh, and lifting pretty heavily from um, actual kind of like market socialist experiments that were going on in Yugoslavia and Hungary and the, the sort of the East Bloc in general. Um, yeah, this is fascinating stuff. Yeah, um, it's really interesting uh, the the sort of scope that she has, and also the um, just the sort of unique perspective she brings because of her experience uh, going to be an exchange student um, in the East Bloc uh, before the collapse of uh, communism, right? And uh, and that sort of perspective that she got you know when uh she went there expecting to get an introduction to marxism uh <laughs> but actually ended up like talking to all these free marketeer economists right um and that, that kind of set her down a journey to understand what was going on there and who was involved and it kind of led to this uh this uh, book yeah and it's um it's it's a history that's not really uh like widely written about or discussed elsewhere um like this is this seems to be like actually kind of novel sort of research or like in a novel packaging of this uh, of these ideas together um yeah especially because she did a, a a number of interviews for this uh book which were uh, largely off the record uh, in the sense that the names were not uh, included uh, because uh, there are, uh, you know, there's apparently a lot of suspicion on the part of economists of any kind of uh, interviews or um, uh, personal data that uh, could be used to uh, either defame or sort of like incriminate them. Um yeah, and so she she actually did a lot of sort of like world traveling, talking to all these different people from different countries about what was going on. And I think that's quite valuable as like a matter of historical record, even if we're not really sure exactly where um, these sources are, are coming from. Yeah, definitely. And like, um, I think this this is a... This this book, I think it it's it has problems, but for me, it's just problems of like length and like it's it's written in a very academic style. But it is a fine book. Um, the content is good, and I kind of I kind of like would like to actually see it in a kind of a much kind of more compact format, uh, even just so it would reach a kind of wider audience because um, this is kind of very interesting stuff. Um, and um, at the at the heart of all this is this kind of like um, uh, neoclassical economics and how. Um, the like neoclassical econo economists had kind of used socialism as a kind of a modeling tool 
initially to kind of compare with markets and such, but then eventually ended up kind of concluding that markets and planning, like kind of socialist planning, were mathematically equivalent. And so lessons about one system were applicable to the other system, um, which is, yeah, that's kind of cool and like novel to, to kind of hear about. Um, like this, we should probably bring it up, yeah, that like neither of us are into neoclassical economics because it's just kind of nuts and like, yeah. not very good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really not my bag. Uh, and uh, I, you know, my experience in grad school of sort of learning economics um, was a lot of really difficult uh, work to uh, unlearn what I was taught in Econ 101 you know, uh, or what had, I just sort of picked up by sort of osmosis from the, the general discourse, uh, that uses neoclassical reasoning. So it was a really, um, you know, difficult struggle intellectually. And I still find that I sort of default into those modes of reasoning that come from neoclassical economics from time to time. Uh, and I'm, I have to sort of like stop myself and be like, <laughs> no, like this is all rubbish. Like it's just, it's, uh, and, uh, and so, um, I kind of look at this book mostly as a matter of like historical interest for understanding the history of like the social, uh, the socialist movement, and also the history of neoliberalism, as well as the history of economics. But um, I don't necessarily agree with uh, Bachman's uh, general argument as to where um, socialism ought to go. Uh, yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, it's this isn't this isn't to be read as an endorsement. It's just kind of this is a a very interesting little story. Um, about where where these ideas kind of originated from, um, and kind of like I, could, I think like what we saw in All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, you can kind of trace these ideas back through history and find that they actually have kind of like very flimsy beginnings, um, which is definitely true for neo neoclassical economics. Um, for the sake of the listener, actually, who probably doesn't know the difference between classical and neoclassical, uh, would you mind kind of giving them a quick kind of elevator pitch for both? Uh, sure. So. Uh, what's called classical economics or, or classical political economy um, it was sort of the original uh, form of, of what later became economics. And that is the form of economics that is usually associated with uh, Adam Smith and uh, Ricardo. Uh, so these are, these are two sort of giants of uh, the history of economics that everybody would point back to as um, progenitors for their their school of thought. And Marx, uh, when he wrote Capital, was mainly providing a critique of their work, uh, as well as the, you know, the sort of lesser known uh, political economists of his day. Uh, but he he was he was kind of carrying on their work and critiquing it at the same time, um, and what we often see as characteristic of uh, classical political economy is a focus on uh, the labor theory of value, um, 
as the, the sort of core of understanding, uh, like the, the unit that stands at the center of, uh, of the whole system. Um, so that is the idea that uh, value is largely a result of um, the labor put into production. And that uh, prices are in some sense related to values, which are the result of production time in terms of, of work. Um, and another uh, thing that is really a characteristic of classical political economy is that it uh, talks a lot about um, class struggle. Uh, this is not only true of Marx, this is also true of Smith and Ricardo, uh, because the classical political economists uh, sort of tried to understand uh, how the product of society was allocated to landlords, uh, capitalists, and uh, workers. And uh, they have like a theory of that, uh, of these different social classes and, and who gets what. So that's another really characteristic thing about it. What you see with the transition to neoclassical economics, uh, so this was the, an, a new school of thinking that developed in the late uh, 19th century, um, is this move to what is called the so-called subjective theory of value. Um, and uh, it is... Uh, a tr it's a theory of value that ostensibly says that value is about, you know, what uh, people value subjectively, what their preferences are, right? So with the subjective theory of value, the neoclassical economists claim to have solved a problem that the classical economists could not, which is that there's a discrepancy between prices and values. Right. Uh, so the price of something is not uh, directly proportional to how much labor time is put into making it. Right. That makes sense. Um, and so they claimed that this meant that uh, classical political economy was incoherent. Um, and they argued that uh, their subjective theory of valuation made more sense. It was more coherent because it was like, oh, well, price is a result of, uh, of preferences of consumers, uh, which is, you know, aggregated up to the, the entire economy. Um, and uh, this is another sort of contentious issue. Uh, but... Um, they also claim to have more sophisticated sort of mathematical understanding of the way the economy worked than the uh, classical political economists did. Um, if you go and read Marx, you'll see that the math in Marx is really pretty simple stuff. Um, uh, if you get into like Capital Volume 2 and you get into like the reproduction schemas, it does become somewhat complex, but it's... It's really not on the level of using uh, a lot of sophisticated calculus or anything like that, which is sort of something you see as a hallmark of, of neoclassical economics. This isn't really true because uh, 
later classical political economy or later classical economics, uh, such as that done by uh, Anwar Sheikh, has has used a lot of sophisticated mathematical modeling. So there's nothing inherently uh, more sophisticated mathematically about the way that neoclassical economics works. But at the time, that was sort of their calling card, right? And and the the sort of coup de gras for them, uh, in a sense, was coming up with this theory of general equilibrium, right? Because it was like initially they had this subjective value theory and they had this concept of equilibrium where supply and demand meet, then you have uh, an equilibrium, right? Um, but they didn't have a model of how this actually worked for the entire economy. Um, and so when Walra came up with the theory of general equilibrium, they sort of said, well, we have this sophisticated mathematical model. Uh, it is consistent with the way prices work and it can cover the entire uh, economic system. Um, and for various reasons, uh, some of which were political and which we might get into in this discussion, uh, they kind of swept the world of economics and uh, like specifically in the period from around the 30s to about the 60s um, and became sort of like the main game in town. Um, and the other schools of economics, including uh, classical political economy, uh, were really like sidelined and became uh, marginal. So that that's that's kind of the history of that in a nutshell. Uh, I hope it is uh, a little bit easy to follow. Honestly, we may have to do a different episode on this just to uh, to get this distinction down um, because it is a complicated history um, and simplifying it is is not easy. Yeah, definitely. It's like um, there, there's there's a lot going on there, but it is it is kind of important to have that grounding at least somewhat so that you can kind of follow along with the discussion because uh, neoclassical economics is like basically the focus of the book, um, really. And there's like there's a, there's a couple of assertions that we start out with in the introduction, which are setting the themes for what's going to be discussed. That like. Uh, we're kind of often led to believe that there's this kind of like strict dichotomy in economics between like the state and markets, like in estate planning versus markets. But actually, like for for neoclassical econo economists, they were like they, they actually saw them as mathematically equivalent in many ways. And also they were a lot of them were more concerned with the axes of hierarchy versus democracy. And a lot of these guys were deeply concerned also with the kind of institutions that were required to make markets function properly. Um, so it really isn't that strict binary between like state planning versus free markets. Like even if even if you are talking about free markets with these people, they'll still want to drill down into what kind of institutions you're going to put in place to um, allow for those markets to flourish, which is a part of the conversation that has basically disappeared since uh, like in the last couple of decades. Um, right. It's gone. You know, specifically, there is a conversation in this book about free markets in the name of capitalism versus free markets in the name of socialism, right? Uh, that there is this idea of a kind of uh, perfect free market, right? Um, because the, 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 the equivalence in the, the neoclassical model is between a, um, a centrally planned economy and a perfectly free market. Um, those, are, those are considered to be equivalent to one another. Um, because, well, the way the free market works in the neoclassical model is um, 
that I mean, on the one hand, it's it's a it's a mathematical model, so it it could be mathematically equivalent to uh, what is described as central planning. And often neoclassical economists would reason about the way the market worked by starting from a position of reasoning about central planning, right? Um, just to simplify things. Uh, but there's also this issue where there's kind of like this figure in neoclassical economics called the auctioneer um, that coordinates uh, all of the transactions in the market. Now, this person does not actually exist, but in the model, it's assumed to exist. So it's easy to understand how the central planner, or uh, what's some call, sometimes called in, uh, in the neoclassical economics, uh, the social planner, could be equivalent to the auctioneer uh, as this coordinating figure, right? Uh, so the, the overlap uh, happens on a mathematical level, but it also happens on a theoretical level to some extent. Yeah, and then like even stepping beyond that kind of theoretical level, like a lot of these uh, economists seem to have believed that, like actually like, sincerely thought that like socialist institutions did provide better conditions for markets than capitalism did. Um, so it's like stepping out into the actual kind of like real kind of concrete policy of no, actually we believe that um, like a kind of worker-led democracy is a better environment for truly competitive markets to flourish, uh, which is again another another sort of idea that's kind of uh, been been buried. Um, I mean, we'll we'll get into that towards the end of the episode as well. There may there may in fact be great reasons why that was buried, but um, like the, 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 there's there, there's a very different history here than we're often led to kind of believe. Um, you know, is there in, in the development of these ideas. Yeah, and she says, like, on multiple occasions that um, she is she's intentionally writing this history in such a way as to exclude the two main stories of the history of economics that are often told, right? There's the, the story of the rise of Keynesianism, the rise and fall of Keynesianism, right? Um, and there is the story of the socialist calculation debate. And these are the two sort of uh, ways that um, the history of economics is usually seen. But where she starts is from this idea of the universality of neoclassical economics uh, in its early period, um, and then how that how various uh, actors tried to uh, deny that universality, right? In in the in the sort of like interwar period um, and leading into like into the fifties, and then how in the postwar period that universality idea was restored uh, by way of an international dialogue between neoclassical economists in both the Eastern Bloc and in the capitalist world. Yeah, and like that's that's the subject of the second chapter, which we've we've already gone through basically all of the first chapter just there. It was kind of like establishing the kind of um, the axioms, but um, yeah, like after like from the mid fifties onwards, like after the kind of death of Stalin and the kind of end of the McCarthy presidency, you get this kind of like opening up of that kind of dialogue, and like both both like internally in both of those states where, um, like. Uh, Soviet economists were no longer kind of under the thumb of um, of that kind of oppression, and also like uh, Sovietologists in the United States were no longer kind of terrified for their lives with the the FBI banging on their doors. And then like across the kind of 
divide, you also have this opening up of a dialogue between East and West, um, all couched in this kind of common language of neoclassical economics and its kind of mathematical trappings. Yes, yes. We, we saw how uh, this opening up uh, worked in terms of cybernetics in the Soviet Union in, in Red Plenty, uh, but the dialogue that was happening was a broader one uh, that also involved, yeah, Sovietology and neoclassical economics, um, and and uh, a lot of uh, sort of cross-border communication that was starting, and which these these uh, economists uh, used uh, to both construct like a sort of universal language for communicating with each other, but also for improving their own position within their countries. Right? Yeah, because they, they became the um, the kind of the, the gods of this um, this kind of economic discipline. Um, and kind of rose to um, positions of serious power because like they were, you know, important people who had important things to say. Um, yeah, and she's, she, well, she says that... Um, because they were liminal figures, because they knew something about the other on the other side of the Iron Curtain, um, they had a certain amount of charisma that they could use because of that. Yeah, so like the, the, the word liminal comes up again and again in the book, and it's kind of like this notion of this, um, yeah, post-mid-50s, this kind of liminal space opening up, like a kind of a space of possibilities. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a space for critiquing kind of old socialism and exploring new kinds of socialism that could come. And and just all, all sorts of different kinds of economics um, that like or the, the kind of combinations of these systems and also remember again that because the because um, you know markets and planning were mathematically equivalent um, the lessons from one were actually applicable to the other um, so yeah like a huge explosion of possibilities here um, and like you get the, the kind of usual just like ordinary stuff of like student exchange becomes a thing post uh, 1954 or so um, you get actual international conferences. Um, and just like book exchanges, like cause if your library is basically fucking empty um, because you can't get anything across the border, it's kind of cool to go to a conference and just swap books with people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, something I can kind of grasp uh, living in uh, Japan uh, for when I was an academic and uh, um the extent to which I was isolated from the conversations that were happening in North America or Europe, uh, and just like how hard it was to get to conferences, um, how expensive it was, uh, I can kind of vaguely understand how exciting it must have been to have this, this, this sudden new access to the conversation that was happening over the, on the other side. And then having this, uh, you know, kind of universal language that could talk across capitalism and socialism in the form of, of neoclassical economics. Yeah, and like there, there's a kind of a fun little little anecdote here as well about like um, uh, like the, the, for a conference the Soviets send their their planners, but the um, the Americans send representatives from IBM because they recognize that the internal planning structure of a corporation was um, relevant to the Soviet planning uh, apparatus. Um, and there, there was, no, it's fine. There's just an, there's, there, it's not even that there's an isomorphism between these two things. They just are the same thing, right? Like it's planning <laughs> in both cases. <laughs> um, 
But that gives, yes. you, gives you an idea of the kind of collaboration that was going on here and the kind of opening up of, uh, of possibilities. And it kind of turned out that like both sides had a lot in common. Like um, in, in some cases they had like discovered the same techniques in parallel. Um, like our buddy Kantorovich from Red Plenty had an equivalent in Koopman's from um, the, the the West. And like they when they got to actually exchanging letters, they found they had both invented linear programming at approximately the same time independently. And also, I think there's an important point here as well that like um, in both the West and, and the East, like there was this kind of new new critique of kind of the status quo, like kind of the new Soviet leaders were like openly criticizing Stalinism. And um, in the West, like in the 60s, um, like US culture changed as well and kind of opening up this critique of the government and its foreign policy. So there's again this, this like thing of like finally being able to breathe and finally being able to actually criticize uh, things that were kind of shitty and have this international dialogue about all of that and start to explore these new spaces. Um, yeah, it, it, read, it reads really well. It's like a very compelling sort of story of, uh, of how that went down. But like chapter three then brings us on to uh, neoclassical economics and Yugoslav socialism, which is um, kind of an in- a really interesting kind of story that it, like probably no one has ever heard. Where like, like Yugoslavia was ejected basically from the kind of uh, the central planning bit of the uh, Soviet Union, the kind of like East Bloc. And um, they actually set up this kind of like decentralized, like worker-led market socialism um, which was like highly experimental and cutting edge for the time. Um, yeah, yeah, they were really able to act as a kind of um, in-between country uh, between the USSR and, and the US, right? Because they were originally very close to the USSR. They implemented a Soviet economic model. Um, and then uh, there was a falling out between uh, Tito and Stalin, um, right and and then the Yugoslavians found themselves out in the cold kind of unexpectedly um, and so they turned to the United States for help um, and because uh, the US was sort of uh, you know lending them money uh, and they're, they're starting to develop uh, sort of cultural uh, and uh, academic ties and financial ties uh, with the West well, at various periods, sort of getting closer again to the Eastern Bloc, they were able to develop this social model that was really distinct from both the American one and the Soviet one. Yeah, like it was, it was really cool. Like, cause like um, to give a bit of a rundown, we're talking like a uh, decentralizing the economy away from like state control, um, creating like worker ownership kind of through these uh, workers' councils. Um, kind of eventually getting into this like social ownership of the means of production, like explicitly opposed to state ownership and, uh, and, and markets, like just expanding the role of markets so that you would have these like worker directed firms competing on this open market um, as a model for socialism. The, the ideology here was that, um, you know, in uh, some places, Marx talks about how uh, after the revolution, the establishment of socialism, you'll move towards kind of communism, right? Um, and uh, there will be a withering away of the state, right? The state will wither away. Uh, and this was interpreted by these economists and the leadership of the Soviet or of, of Yugoslavia um, as the state's role getting smaller and worker-owned. 
cooperatives becoming a more and more important uh, part of social life. Yeah, the kind of I think they they've used limited sort of planning, but like to set the to sketch the outlines of the economy, and then the the kind of firms independently would compete in the market to meet the plan. So there was, was there was elements of planning left, but um, this was um, I think like you'd mentioned that like they were because they were out in the cold, they were kind of in this in between kind of space where. Um, they ended up kind of as like leaders of this non-aligned movement of kind of like um, I suppose what you, what you would call third-world countries, who um, were in a kind of like a state of development, and um, this ba- basically like this this model ended up being taken very seriously and like a lot of uh, getting a lot of attention from the international community as a model for development of non-aligned uh, or third-world countries. Um, You'd like the big institutions here, like IMF, United Nations, World Bank and such, like really looking at this with intense interest and starting to develop um, uh, develop policy, like kind of in recommendations for nations to actually kind of do this same thing. Um, well, and another thing was because this, because Yugoslavia was not uh, so closely tied to the Soviet Union, many of their economists, um, and, you know, this was uh, also true to some extent of Hungary, um, many of their economists actually got to go work for the World Bank. Yeah, because they were experts Uh, in this stuff, you know? Yeah. They were experts in market transition, Um, having transitioned from the kind of Stalinist planned economy into this kind of market situation. um, Yeah, so like there were plenty of Yugoslavs at at these institutions um, giving their advice. Yeah, and like chapter four then kind of brings us to a kind of parallel example in Hungary, um, which is, which kind of turns out very similarly actually um but has the kind of difference where like it's it's not as distributed it's um kind of still quite centralized um in that the the state still owns the kind of uh, means of production and it's it's like i think hungary is still inside the the tent at this point um and is um still under the kind of thumb of of moscow really um yeah it's uh, often called uh, goulash socialism uh was the hungarian model <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a it's a fun chapter, but it's like kind of gets into um, kind of some nitty gritty stuff about how um, how this kind of neoclassical economics was um, cultivated in various kind of institutions and uh, academies of learning, but yeah, it kind of ends up being very very kind of similar, and it's kind of like we're using we're using markets, uh, firms are off the leash to some extent, um, we're pegging some prices but not others, and. Um, trying to kind of like it's basically kind of like a lesser kind of version of what what Yugoslavia like Yugoslavia was much more cutting edge in its experimentation like the sheer experimentation with um economic models they were doing oh yes and like and um Hungary had this kind of like new um new economic mechanism introduced in the in 68 which 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 was that um you know state ownership um without output targets but using these kind of like indirect economic levers there's, there's a little bit of discussion here about the kind of notions of economic mechanisms and this kind of development of these ideas about like levers that you could pull and like direct levers would be like direct intervention from the administration into the economy um but the indirect levers would be financial or economic kind of incentives and you can kind of see here the the bubbling of you can see the bubbling up of these kind of ideas that would end up typifying uh neoliberalism the kind of like indirect um non-intervention in the in the economy like as as a kind of guiding principle sort of has as some of its kind of roots here um yes and also just this idea of like reform 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 right this idea of uh, of market transition 
uh, and uh, the transition in in the case of these uh, socialists, the transition was from a uh, centralized uh, state planning model of socialism towards a market socialism that was more uh, decentralized. Uh, but this this idea of transition or market transition uh, was something that became sort of decoupled from the specifics of that that situation and got integrated into the general uh, neoliberal project. Yeah, it did. And like we can kind of see even here, um, like before, like I think that that's kind of wrapped up towards the end of the book. But um, even at this stage, it's kind of like that this this new system was sort of like a very it was a very mixed bag like it, it actually reinforced hierarchy rather than ter- with like distributing the economy properly um it didn't do anything to reduce worker exploitation there wasn't really that kind of economic democracy like it was a sort of a partial reform um which would end up being problematic because um this would this would kick off like a lot of thrashing back and forth and kind of like various reform efforts over the years and um I think that that kind of thrashing eventually muddies the water so much that like the the word the words reform and transition start to lose all meaning, and that opens up a space for uh, basically kind of international right wing interests to co opt the kind of conversation about reform and and transition, and to um, transition to the the brutal hellscape that would be the the neoliberal reforms. Um, right, right. Um, because the the thing was that. These uh, economists in Hungary and Yugoslavia uh, were constantly struggling against the established bureaucracy, uh, the established way of doing things that had been set up um, under uh, the uh, Soviet auspices, right? Um, and, you know, and, and this is a thing we saw in Red Plenty as well, right? The cybernetic reformers uh, running into opposition from the bureaucracy. Um, and so in order to represent their opposition and to argue for their point of view, they would, um, you know, go into very uh, harsh criticisms of the existing uh, system, right? Or of, of the uh, reform efforts that they saw as degenerate, which is, you know, another thing that we saw in like Red Plenty where uh, there was that, that scene at the end uh, with Kosygin, right? Um, where it's like, well, if you do reform that way, it's just going to make things worse, right? Like, this is this is the wrong reform. These kind of piecemeal measures they saw were something that they would criticize very, very harshly. Um, and those criticisms and that sort of critical attitude was something that would later be taken up by the right wing um, in attacking socialism just across the board, any form of socialism, they would use the same sorts of arguments that these economists directed against a particular kind of socialism that they were opposed to. Yeah, definitely. Like, and it's um, that that's how that conversation eventually ended up being hijacked, really, that um, there was there was so much thrashing and so much kind of like kicking up of silt to kind of muddy the waters that um yeah, this lost all sort of meaning, and you, you could end up selling anything as a reform. Um, yeah, but uh, before we before we get to that, we have chapter five, which takes a little bit of um, initially starts to read as a bit of a diversion, but it is actually kind of core to how all this played out. Um, you look at Italy, um, and particularly this uh, this institute, the uh, Center for the Study of Economic and Social Problems, uh, shortened to CESES, and I think pronounced cases or something. Um, I think it was 1964 through to about 80 something. 
And this is an interesting one because this is like a, an institute that's set up and funded by kind of right-wing interests like hap, uh, capitalists and such with the express purpose of like training this kind of managerial class that would be opposed to communism and doing that by showing them the failures of socialism and um, also showing them the demand for market reform in Eastern Europe. But there's a tricky thing going on here, right? Because like they were, they were going to do this by uh, having like courses on Sovietology and like youth camp sort of teaching stuff where they would get kids in and tell them all about, about the horrors of communism. But um, like, how do you teach that stuff without hiring leftists, right? Like they, 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 it ended up like staffed by a variety of different people, but like a substantial amount of the staff were former Communist Party of Italy members who were opposed to the, the Soviet system, but weren't strictly anti-socialist, right? This is something the funders missed, right? They, they presumed that anyone who was anti-Soviet was anti, anti-communist entirely, which just wasn't the case. Like the, the situation in Italy, or just like in general with this kind of crowd, was much more kind of heterogeneous than they, they could ever have really predicted. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting story where they like imported Sovietology from the United States um, but the people who were really the most interested in studying it were leftists because they actually wanted to know what was happening in the Eastern Bloc, whereas the right wingers uh, were, you know, less interested in having a conversation with people over there. So they weren't very good reporters or investigators of the of the subject matter and. That gave these leftists a certain amount of bargaining power um, with their employers who are like these, you know, haute bourgeoisie, like big industrial combine capitalists in Italy. Right. Um, uh, and uh, and so, the, yeah, they had a certain amount of like relative autonomy. Right. Like they were they were able to leverage their academic credentials to create a space for what they attempted uh, to create. And that was a um, a empirically based uh, and sort of fair minded evaluation of socialism uh, that actually engaged in dialogue with people across the border. Yeah. And like with the, the kind of objective of creating kind of like New, again, this this kind of liminal space idea where it's like this is a space of possibilities where people are exploring what new socialisms could look like. Um, really, really fun. And like the um, there's also a discrepancy between like what the funders were expecting and what actually kind of happened in that like the funders wanted a kind of McCarthy era uh, total condemnation of the Soviet Union. But by that point in history, like kind of after the mid 50s and like the 60s and such, both the East and the West were in such flux that like these new Sovietologists weren't really able to kind of come out with those kind of pronouncements, like in any kind of definite way. Um, they were instead abandoning the old kind of like uh, totalitarian model. Um, it's something we, we kind of missed out on a bit, but like that um, early Sovietology, like because because the, the practitioners were so afraid of... Um, the American state, they felt the need to like make this big dog and pony show about like denouncing the Soviet Union. So that's where you get this like big um, mess about like, oh, the t- totalitarian nature of it. The, the the Soviets are as bad as the Nazis, all that kind of stuff. Like that's where that dates from is the kind of need for these people to save their fucking skins from the FBI. But um, the, the funders of this institution were expecting the same, right? Like they were expecting more of the same, but they actually found that these were 
people who were engaged in actually serious study about two societies that were in flux at that moment instead. And it was like highly disappointing for the funders. <laughs> yeah, and actually the story with uh, the development of neoclassical economics in this context is pretty similar, right? Like the, the turn towards neoclassical economics was partially driven by the desire to escape political criticism. Uh, in the United States, uh, in the um, in the McCarthyist era, right, uh, and 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 because neoclassical economics, in the way it was it was created, uh, was so mathematically opaque, and because it it did involve a lot of sophisticated mathematics that could be used uh, in the U.S. military uh, for logistical purposes. Um, it became advantageous to study neoclassical economics. Um, and so there was this, this way in which both Sovietology and neoclassical economics were shaped by that post-World War II McCarthyist era and the political pressures that were put on uh, scholars. And then both of these things became a, uh, a medium or a, a way for scholars to talk across borders um, and to have a dialogue and to participate in the intellectual opening up of the 60s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, there's, there's just distinct parallels there with this. Um, and yeah, just just like they're the, the the conservatives are here are playing catch up right like the, to to what's actually happening um, in, in both yeah it's, it's great when uh, they talk about how Milton Freeman came over to talk to them and uh, they just sort of like you know used uh, his uh, ignorance of the local situation to like pass it off as though they were they were all on board with the neoliberal agenda right with the uh, with the uh, Mount Pelerin kind of agenda right and. Uh, and he, they just kind of like pulled one over on him. <laughs> so yeah. Kind of a fun story. Uh, uh, but um, no, it's great. And like, there's, there's one kind of really fun kind of bit, uh, like before it kind of moves on to the next chapter with like um, these youth training seminars uh, where they would get kids, uh, some dipshit fucking kids from wherever and bring them to Italy and tell them all about the, the you know, communism and such but like they were they, their curriculum was all like marxism leninism and um maoist theory and such like that and what it ended up doing was turning the kids into maoist third worldists instead of like indoctrinating them against fucking communism <laughs> it's like yeah and I, this is backfired badly I, I think <laughs> it's quite interesting because like um in a sense the program was successful in creating the managers that the industrialists wanted right like they um they weren't necessarily always right wing uh they often went to the left um and but you know many of them did go on to occupy managerial jobs in the italian state or in like international governance institutions so um yeah it was it's it's really there's a lot of ironies here because um you know, there's that relative autonomy we talk to, we talk about, and like how um, they were able to do sort of like innovative socialist research, um, but and then they were also able to kind of indoctrinate young people into uh, into uh, left wing doctrine, right? Um, but uh, they 
the, the, the further irony was that in the end, this um, whole episode actually did end up benefiting the neoliberals and the <laughs> the right wing. Uh, As so, we know, they, they got what they wanted eventually, right? Like, yeah, that's, that. <laughs> that's the point where relative autonomy be, is relative, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's great. That's a, that's a fun little chapter. It's kind of like, I, I, I liked that one because it was like... Um, I don't know, like a little bit of comic relief in between um, some pr pretty pretty hefty sort of chapters on um, the Yugoslav and Hung Hungarian examples and the kind of stuff we're going to get onto with this kind of like um, chapter six, which is a bit of a bit of a monster and like um, it's titled "Market Socialism or Capitalism." And what 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 the author is going to do here is like bring us from the seventies up to about nineteen eighty nine um, and try to explain what what actually kind of led to those um, those events. Um, and it seems to be that kind of like as as the seventies progressed, neoclassical economics kind of entered um, a phase of self critique, um, basically kind of driven by these like partial reforms that had like not gone too far enough, and you know economists had then like turned kind of turned in on themselves a bit and started cr critiquing their own techniques and tools. But that begins a sort of argument about reform, which can eventually be hijacked, you know? Yeah, uh, the, the sort of the failings of the reform movement um, did help to both problematize uh, neoclassical economics um, as a model for reform um, and uh, problematize uh, sort of like the entire situation that these countries were in like it, it, it there's a there's a really distinct sense in this chapter um of like all coordinates sort of being lost and like just like the things that you think are reality uh slipping away just like everything becoming everything this this sort of chaos of concepts that are all equivalent because um they are all, uh, you know, like they have that mathematical equivalence and then that starts to like um, bleed through into the general conceptual uh, apparatus um, and everybody just sort of loses their way. Yeah, it's um, it, it seems like I, and I even found it kind of hard to track while reading it from from this point onwards, because like just there's there's so many different threads interweaving here. But there's there's actually one key idea that I think I kind of missed out on a little bit earlier um, that there was there was this kind of like right wing interpretation of um, neoclassical economics that was much narrower than was generally accepted for the field. And it was a an interpretation that simply took existing hierarchies and power structures as given and then added markets to them or kind of like liberalized markets. And there was like very strong opposition or like I suppose the field was split really that like there was these kind of interests who took the narrow view that was fine with with existing hierarchy and then there was like actually substantial opposition to this. Um, and that's where you get the genesis of that critique where um, the, the, the kind of um, the narrow view gets its kind of day in the sun and then the kind of People who kind of like have that opposition start to kind of kvetch about it and like insist on further reforms, and um, it's where it all starts to little spiral a little bit from there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's also a nice little bit here about like um, how in the kind of in in the East and the Soviet Union, the kind of like these uh, new computers were kind of opening the possibility of replacing markets with planning planning machines. Um, but this was also compatible with those hierarchical notions. 
um, there was there was more resistance to that, you know. Um, yeah, there's a there's a definite sense that um, one reason why uh, you know the sort of cybernetic approach that we saw in Red Plenty was um, characteristic of what happened in the Soviet Union uh, was because having um, markets replace the central planning system just wasn't on the table there, right? Like, it was, that was something that just couldn't even really be uh, discussed uh, as a serious reform effort um, until the 80s. Um, but uh, the idea of reforming the planning system by means of uh, cybernetics um, and uh, computer-assisted planning uh, was uh, something that was at least conceivable, even if it wasn't something they were able to implement. Yeah, it's really it, the, 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 the kind of differences between these different regions, like the kind of like Soviet Union proper, the Eastern Bloc, the various like parts of the Bloc, um, really fly in the face of this kind of like received wisdom of that, that whole area of the world being just one huge Stalinist nightmare, you know, that like was was a complete basket case at all times. There was never any serious uh, economics or production being done there. Like that's that's a fucking smokescreen, really. Like it's you actually look at the actual history, and there's like great variety in the different kinds of e uh, economics that were pursued um, all throughout that part of the world. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, one. Uh, this isn't part of the book, but one of the consequences of. Um, the collapse of socialism was that the people who studied uh, some of this stuff uh, ended up actually going on to um, create a, a school of uh, economics uh, called the Variety of Varieties of Capitalism School, um, and it sort of took that uh, approach to breaking down. A monolithic understanding of socialism and applied it to research into capitalism and kind of like looked at like how different capitalisms have different uh, characteristics. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting uh, outcome of the way this all played out, although I don't think it really um, I don't think it really had uh, much in the way of uh, revolutionary or liberatory impact. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> more of a curiosity but you know hey but yeah so like we, we get kind of walked through an example of um this kind of problem in uh in hungary like with the this kind of uh you know sort of partial reforms are implemented and then the kind of like hungarian economists being cr critical of of those same kind of reforms that were like didn't didn't go far enough really and um you get kind of this like um criticism of even the kind of assumptions like i think this this guy cornai goes really kind of nuts on like denouncing neoclassical economics as being unfit for reform work, that it's too abstract. It doesn't actually describe a real economy. Um, yeah, and he wrote a book called Anti-Equilibrium, which is, you know, pretty pretty interesting for a neoclassical economist to do. Um, and uh, as far as I understand, he kind of later in his life kind of came back to God, so to speak, um, <laughs> re repented for his apostasy and, 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 and accepted that really the neoclassical model uh, did at least provide an ideal to work towards. Uh, but in this period of time, he was really uh, doing some 
uh, sort of cutting edge work with with trying to uh, grapple with the inadequacies of neoclassical economics and and trying to sort of forge a different understanding that could be used for reform. Mm. And uh, and he he and others were kind of pushing for these 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 further reforms to like actually kind of. Um, commit to like really competitive markets and um and actual social ownership and so on but this was this was playing out across the whole east block as well this kind of like crisis reform backlash further reform kind of cycle yeah but then like 82 hungarian workers are given the right to create kind of work partnerships with these kind of like semi-autonomous subcontracting units um which are kind of kind of interesting um and like they also kind of establish these like enterprise councils or no, it's like that, that the councils are able to appoint a director that would be able to kind of actually direct the kind of firm, like in terms of like uh, deciding its fate. Um, so you've got, you've got more sort of experimentation with different kind of forms of control and ownership here. Um, right, right. Um, yeah, there, there's this kind of idea that like they needed to separate uh, control from ownership. So, you know, workers owning the means of production do not does not imply that workers control the means of production, right? And so trying to experiment with more sort of like worker democracy, more uh, worker uh, control over uh, management. Um, yeah. That yeah, was good. It was good, good sort of in- initiatives. Um, I mean, it'll sadly not work out, but <laughs> good initiatives. And like par- in parallel as well, you kind of have the same, more or less the same themes kind of playing out in Yugoslavia, where... Um, the kind of initial like r- big sort of reforms for this kind of market socialism were met by like opposition from like students, like students were striking, kind of opposing markets and opposing this kind of like uh, bourgeois liberal technocracy, kind of like um, directing directing the reforms. Um, so the, these market socialists find themselves in opposition then, um, alongside like nationalists and other sort of crazies. And then, and then they do something like in, in, like another sort of reform brings in this kind of like contractual socialism, with like, uh, which which kind of combines this like devolution of power to the the constituent republics, which I think were like uh, what Serbia, Croatia, and a few others. Um, yeah, and that was that was kind of a bit of a mistake, seemingly that like they, instead of decentralizing the economy properly, they devolved power to these republics, um, which. I think could be taken as a certainly a factor in the um, ethnic conflicts that would eventually flare up in that region. Um, kind of like if you're given a kind of a free hand to that kind of national fervor there. Yes, uh, there was uh, at the same time that there was this debate over the structure of the economy happening. There was also a debate about uh, nationalism that was happening because the uh, different republics were developed uh, to different degrees economically. And there was um, always this struggle within the federation uh, between uh, those republics that uh, tried to maintain the federal composition and benefit from that. And then those like the haves and have nots, right? So the the have nots wanted to uh, mostly uh, stick to federal forms, and then the haves wanted mostly a kind of, uh, uh, you know, fuck you got mine mm. uh, mentality, right? <laughs> like, as you find yeah. in most federations, right, the, the, the haves are, are going to try to, you know, give as little as they can to the federation. Um, yeah, definitely. And, like, um, there's, there's this kind of, like, you know, general opposition 
from neoclassical economists to these these changes, including this sort of stuff about like um like breaking work like work units into these like small kind of organizations that would then be contracted from the state. Um, and like there's like really strong critique here that like this ends up being kind of like you know like it's it's the state that's directing everything really. It's not actually a distributed economy, but um, it's all kind of like mediated through these contracts and this kind of market stuff that like doesn't actually. Um, I don't know. It's, it sounds like a libertarian nightmare, really, the, the way it sort of reads off the page, you know? Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the point was here that they saw it as causing a lot of sort of like uh, mediation and like overly complex uh, a, uh, arrangements between different groups and that it really wasn't... Uh, the kind of ideal free market that they wanted to realize with like just a lot of uh, small producers who are all price takers and who would who would generate like the sort of maximally efficient outcome. They saw it as going so into not neither central planning nor market socialism, but some kind of like weird hybrid thing that was not what they wanted. Um, and therefore, uh, they became uh, even more intense critics of the existing system. Mm. And like that, that, that criticism matters because this is what eventually kind of like this, this, this self-flagellation allows the kind of like right-wing international networks to kind of really latch on to this as evidence for the necessity of uh, private property and hierarchy uh, in addition to markets. Um, but like that, that criticism and that kind of like earnest dialogue trying to improve the state of market socialism would eventually be twisted around in such a way as like, well, you know, you, we need reforms, we need market stuff, you know, and that, be, that just becomes a tool for the neoliberal sort of crowd um, trying to push for these changes. Yeah, they were able to sort of harness the existing frustration and uh, turn it towards uh, the neoliberal reforms that we're familiar with. Yeah, and I guess like there's there's a bit of there's quite a bit of detail here as well about like the kind of ins and outs of how a lot of this developed. But um, one of the sort of interesting, more interesting parts is when people start to really conceptualize of these like paths into the future, like these 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 stages and phases from like you know phase one being state socialism, phase two being market socialism and so on, but then also, oh, you could transition from that to market capitalism, and they're kind of like mapping out the terrain for where this could all go. Because like there's, there's, there's this fever building and this kind of like appetite for change and reform, um, but not that much consensus, well, some consensus, but like it's not exactly a settled question as to where it's going to go. It seems that like for a majority, like it's seemingly at least in that kind of East Bloc, the majority actually wanted the market socialism. Like, um, yeah, I mean, given the option, uh, people generally were uh, more in favor of this idea of, uh, you know, small ownership by cooperatives um, and sort of this, this idea that neoliberals often uh, appeal to of like, everybody having like an ownership society, right? Um, that was something that people uh, found appealing uh, in these countries. Um, and, uh, you know, as a reaction to the sort of problems of state bureaucracy that they were running into and, and, and under the influence of these reformers, uh, but they envisioned the ownership society as being the ownership uh, of like social property in terms of uh, 
cooperatives and not uh, the ownership society in the sense of a few small businesses here and there and then just like, you know, a bunch of one percenters owning mm. everything, right? It's again the, the importance of institutions, right? Like it's um, it's not just a question of do you have a centralized state planning sort of organization or is it a market? The institutions of ownership and of um, social structure matter enormously. Like, um, yeah, and it's um, it's something that kind of escapes them eventually. But like, there's also this kind of notion of um, kind of coming in here of like there being various like Pareto optima in a system, and you, you might be in one stable orbit, but like it is it would be possible to transition to a different uh, optimum. Uh, with with some like directed effort, and this is kind of a nice kind of like thing of like we're going to like like plan this change that transitions us from this state to this other stable state, which is kind of very contrary to the kind of usual uh, conception of like radical change as being some kind of an anarchic, um, unplanned, completely mad sort of endeavor. Like this was no these like economies were like. No, we, we we are in this stable state, which we have established isn't maybe optimal. Like it's not, it's 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 a stable condition, but it's not the best one. We've identified this other condition that we could be in, and now we're going to enact this plan that pushes us out of this orbit and into the other one. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's an interesting idea. Uh, um, in the in the sense that like. They, they developed this idea of like a general sort of possibility space and moving from one system to another system. Um, uh, however, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's maybe important to sort of mention what uh, Pareto optimality is, um, it, which is when we, when we think about optimums and, you know, we talk about optimization, uh, people generally think it's like to get to the best outcome. Uh, and Pareto optimality is it's it's uh, an optimum within a certain set of local conditions, right? Um, where uh, by re uh, you can't uh, change the allocation of resources within the system without somebody being worse off, right? That's what a Pareto optimum is. Um, so that doesn't mean it's a global optimum according to some to some criterion right and that means that you can have different arrangements that are pareto optimal uh without being optimal in any kind of absolute sense uh and that's why that's where you get the idea that like oh we can switch from one to another yeah um, and the, the, the switch would involve some kind of like um some kind of reform and then maybe like a compensatory sort of measure to uh redistribute wealth or just kind of shift things around because like yeah, if you're if you're in one of these optimal spaces, it's kind of like well, you, you can't change it without making someone worse off. But then you can hop to a different orbit, which maybe in the immediate term changes things a little bit around. But then you just kind of shuffle the deck chairs around, and it, it all works out fine again. Uh, but it's 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 a planned thing, right? This is like a deliberate design of an economy, uh, which I find really cool. Yeah, and the the issue maybe is that it creates a sort of deceptive belief in how easy these transitions are. Yeah, that, that too, certainly. Um, it's, um, but this, this is technocracy, really, isn't it? Like that it's the kind of um, playing with the economy as if it were some object that could be tweaked and, um, and turned yeah, around. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, 
it's like doing A-B testing for a UX, right? Like it's that kind of mentality. Uh, unfortunately, when you're making um, enormous social changes, uh, you know, doing A-B testing isn't possible and making the changes is uh, very uh, disruptive. Yeah. So I guess, um, I guess when I say it, it sounds cool, I mean that like it sounds novel from this perspective now, having after, like long after these events and having even the possibility of minor change, like not, not even talking radical change, but like minor change has been scrubbed off the fucking table completely. Um, exactly. It, it, the thing that is really interesting about this situation is that, you know, maybe because there had been so many reform efforts uh, in um, these countries that had been only sort of like marginally successful or been frustrated, there was a sort of way in which people became accustomed to reform as a, like as a as a way of life or a thing that was happening all the time. There's this kind of constant sort of like tinkering that was happening with the social system. And that kind of opened people up to the idea of radical change in a way that's very very different from the uh way that we see things today. And that that's certainly exciting. Um it's just that uh the the thing that they didn't really realize was that once you make these these big leaps um sometimes that's it you make the leap and it doesn't work out and then you don't get to test again it's just you're in it right and that's what happened in the 90s is they they made a big push there was a lot of enthusiasm about it because um you know, people had been pushing for reform and they were kind of used to the idea of reform. Um, and they had this intellectual framework of moving from Pareto optimum to Pareto optimum. Uh, but ultimately it was like, oh, okay, the capitalists, we have a new capitalist class. They're deeply entrenched in the state and now we can't reform anything anymore. And that's it. Yeah. So that, that kind of does bring us on to the last chapter. Um, kind of the post-1989 uh, landscape there, which is like, so 1989 with like um, a serious instability in the, the East Bloc and in the Soviet Union and the, the Berlin Wall came down, which um, put a kind of stop to a lot of these kind of dreams of um, like continuing reforms into and towards market communism. And yeah, it, like instead in like 1990, you had Poland being the first um, of the Eastern countries to go undergo this shock therapy, which is basically just austerity and liberalization and privatization. Um, the kind of classic neoliberal shit that we're we're all so sick of um, at this point. Yeah, and 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 this was drawing on the idea of transition that had been developed in neoclassical economics over all these years, uh, but applying it in such a way as to create a uh, rigidly hierarchical um, system that developed a new capitalism. Uh, through basically stealing everybody's property and giving it to cronies of the people in power. Yeah, like, I mean, completely contrary to the kind of liberal rhetoric and all this kind of stuff, what, what it gives... And again, there's again this thing of, like, you know, the, the like libertarianism requires this kind of uh, strong state to guarantee property rights, but it's a kind of a contradiction that's never really acknowledged. Um, and there's a very similar theme here that, like, in the name of this liberalization... 
Um, they created this like horribly authoritarian state and kind of re-centralized what had been distributed um, ownership. Um, re-centralized it in this very Stalinist kind of way in order to sell it off. Like the kind of um, it's just it's just looting, really. <laughs> like it's um, yeah. There was like situations where they would uh, socialize the means of production in the sense that they gave people vouchers to like own shares in their companies. But, like, because of all the social chaos that was happening, um, those vouchers tended to get sold for a song. Uh, and then that just led to the um, that led to the, the concentration of power and wealth in a, a tiny elite uh, that was that was connected to the state. Um, and it's actually quite reminiscent of uh, what happened in the aftermath of the French Revolution. Um, where at the end of the revolution, uh, the church had been dispossessed, but otherwise it was kind of all the same families that got uh, all the property back. Um, and so, yeah, this is a, something that's not unprecedented. And if anybody ever makes a suggestion to you, like some libertarian comes up to you and is like, well, what if we just, uh, you know, uh, gave everybody vouchers? No, just don't listen to it. It's bull. It's bullshit. It doesn't work. Um, it's it's all smokescreen um, and yeah, just horrible shit. Um, yeah, and there's there's like a couple of there's a couple of different kind of factors that kind of allowed for this to kind of happen. Um, like this this kind of hijacking of this uh, this dialogue where. Um, like partially the kind of the centrality of the social planner to these uh, economists kind of models meant that they saw themselves as these planning authorities and that enabled them to kind of some of them to pretty easily transition into this um, neoliberal reform of being these kind of authorities that would decide the um, how things would go. And then there's also just a kind of like exploitation of the ambiguity of the words like transition and reform. Um, that like there was an appetite for reform, specifically reform into further forms of uh, market socialism. But then you, you, you get the opportunity to just start talking about reform in the abstract and kind of like transition and markets and stuff. And it's like you, you can end up in a place where you think there's a lot of consensus about what's being discussed, but there actually kind of isn't. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was this this thing where the the universal dialogue or like that universal language that neoclassical economics had come to represent um, and had been sort of embedded into institutions like the World Bank um, meant that uh, there was so much common ground between the leaders of these countries um, and uh, capitalist uh leaning uh, economists from the West uh, that it was very easy for uh, them to have a conversation and speak in a sufficiently abstract way that it wasn't clear that they had completely different goals in mind. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's the one. Um, and yeah, that's the kind of thing that was mostly taken advantage of. And also, the kind of like, it can't escape notice that like... Um, uh, former kind of like staffers of the, these communist parties uh, just kind of like turned tail and like sided with um, the kind of international uh, capitalist elites um, and kind of just just sold out, you know, um, decided to go where, where the money was. Um, and this this kind of like now that they're the right and the kind of like the capitalists have the upper hand, they're able to kind of repaint the Eastern Europe and um, and such as this kind of like 
you know, mass of dumb peasants who didn't really know what they were doing, uh, you know, a blank slate that was embracing capitalism, and to just basically erase all of that history of like these serious, serious economic work that was being done in that region. Um, it's like roughly the level of sophisticated understanding that was taken into invading Iraq. Yeah, um, <laughs> more or less. Like this is um, the old uh, like, uh Yeah, they're all oppressed, and they all want to be Americans. Okay, let's just go kill a bunch of people. Great. Yeah, and, and I mean, it wasn't a armed invasion, but uh, nevertheless, the results were so catastrophic that it did mean many people died. Yeah, um, I mean, like life expectancies fucking plummeted um, after after these reforms. Like it's kind of like. The, the, again, the usual story is that like people were starving to death under socialism, and then the capitalists came in and saved them all. But actually, like people's lives shortened substantially under capitalism compared to where they were previously um, under socialism. And it's like, like so much of this shit is just um, I keep using the word, but smokescreen. Like it is just like actually not factual. Like it's just. Um, ideological stuff that's propagated by like it's like yeah i suppose like the victor you know gets to write fucking history i suppose like and it's this this neoliberal shit is hegemonic and they they, they kind of get to um write history as they please um except it's nonsense and we have an actual history uh, a well-researched one um and i mean i think that's part of where the value is in reading this book is to say like well, actually, the situation there was a lot more sophisticated and a lot more complex than uh, most of our accounts of what was happening, which was basically just like, uh, there's bread lines and there's a wall and they shoot people a lot and uh, everybody's really unhappy and they want to be capitalists. So. Yeah, and um, there's actually one little bit I want to highlight uh, before the end of that chapter that like, the neoliberal reformers were posing this choice between order and disorder and kind of er erasing the that that region's entire sort of movement for participatory economic democracy and like that that choice again between order and disorder that like they, they are the kind of um uh, salvation angels that are coming to give you order and save you from disorder is the same kind of disingenuous shit that you still get out of these kind of third way assholes even today um, yeah, and and it's it's really um, it's really telling. Like, there's one point in this chapter, I think, where she says that one of the justifications for why they they destroyed all the cooperatives was because they were quote unquote inefficient. But really, what that came down to uh, was like some some flimsy sort of economic theories uh, that were mainly backed up by the idea that. Uh, workers are not the right sort of people to be managing things. So really what it was about was class hatred and uh, class war. And that's like that. Yeah, that's that's a really it's really key point that like um, as much as these kind of, um, you know, uh, technocratic sort of liberal types will tell you that they are non-ideological. They're just trying to do the most sensible thing. Like it's all kind of in the spreadsheets for them. What they actually do is they swoop in and carry out this kind of like ideological, ideologically based sort of like open warfare against people they deem to be inferior. Because like to to those people from um, like for the, the kind of international kind of capitalist right, um, ordinary Serbs and Croats were the wrong kind of people to have access to the means of production, right? Like it's, 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's yeah, like you can't trust them. They'll just it's like you know the arguments like oh you can't give workers anything. They'll just spend it all on drinking and, and you know prostitutes. Real and, Monty Burns and, like, shit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So um, whenever whenever these people claim to be non ideological, just fucking laugh at them. It's um it's not even worth entertaining. Yeah, I guess that kind of closes out the, the well. There, there is a sort of a slight bright note to well. Hmm. towards the end of this chapter where uh the author kind of kind of asserts that like with a bit more time these countries could have built up the institutional basis for market communism uh, a bit more and maybe have been able to withstand this um attack and wouldn't have been so vulnerable to having their economies simply looted um i don't know maybe but there is a kind of um Again, the the emphasis on institutions, right? That like the institutions weren't strong enough to actually withstand this kind of chicanery. Um, yeah, and there's 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 one thing she mentions, which is that even though uh, the you know workers in a lot of these cooperatives were organized to a sense in their workplaces within the socialist system as it existed, uh, they still never had um, class based. Uh, organizations um, that were sufficiently uh, developed to fight for their interests in the case that um, something like the liberalization uh, program happened, right? Because, like, you know, you could you could try to organize on a workplace level, uh, but they did not have a sort of um, a corporate level, uh, like in in the sense of like. A, a trans cooperative level uh, that they could organize at in a in a in a sufficiently sophisticated way to fight against the the forces of uh, you know the pre-existing state uh, bureaucracy who were in the process of like selling everything off to get rich um, and the international uh, organizations uh, especially um, the uh, U.S. organizations that were uh, pushing this this program. So that was kind of a problematic outcome of the the political repression uh, that happened during the uh, socialist period. Yeah, um, yeah. There's there's so so many factors, kind of like there's so many wrong turns. Yeah, in like, so many different again, ways here. Yeah. It's like, well, maybe it could have been different. I mean, it's kind of the same thing we ended up with with Red Plenty, right? Like, could it ever, could it ever change? Could it ever change, right? Like, it's it's a big open question, um, and you can't really take any definitive answers from these kind of historical examples. But um, it's nonetheless a uh, story worth knowing, right? Yeah, definitely worth knowing, um, and like. There's this sort of, um, there's an assertion towards the end, which is kind of a bit problematic, um, that we should probably talk about that, like, um, the possibilities for this kind of market socialism are still latent within neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very, uh, it's a very difficult point because, um, I mean, I feel like neoliberalism is more discredited than it ever has been. So I'm not really sure that... <laughs> Do you even want to salvage it? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm not really sure excavating the socialist core of neoliberalism is necessarily the best route for us now. And I also kind of feel that it may be a mistake 
to put too much stock in the neoclassical prescriptions that were uh, kind of the mainstay of reformers in these countries, right? Because, I mean, many of them did start to formulate critiques of neoclassical economics. And in the years since, we've had further developments of of the critiques of neoclassical economics. Um, And I feel like rather than you know, follow this model of the world that sees uh, general equilibrium uh, and uh, pure free markets uh, as some kind of heaven that we have to uh, march towards. Uh, We should probably try to, uh, you know, look at the criticisms of neoclassical economics that exist out there and build a sort of more multidimensional and uh, reality-based uh, <laughs> uh, understanding of yeah. where we're at um, mm-hmm. and, and see where the opportunities are for change. So, like, that doesn't mean um, writing off cooperatives, right? It, but it means acknowledging things like the neoclassical model of markets is only really functional for a very narrow definition of markets um, and therefore, trying to uh, reform your entire society on the basis of that model will probably have a lot of really bad effects. Um, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so it's 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 questionable as to whether it's even desirable to. Um, I mean, I think it's always desirable to draw some kind of lesson from um, from something, but I have serious serious doubts about the kind of uh, this. Yeah. Like you said, this this neoclassically based um, market socialism, I'm just just not convinced. Um, but like w- because the, the the book is so long and it, it exposes you to so much of that kind of neoclassical stuff, um, it can be kind of easy to forget that that like it's the axioms of that kind of um, field are actually kind of weird and like not based in reality. Um, yeah, and that, that that's the thing that is hardly ever addressed in the book. Like, it comes up briefly in that discussion about the late reform period, uh, but generally speaking, uh, the way that neoclassical economics is introduced in this book and um, is discussed uh, kind of assumes that it is... Uh, based on legitimate assumptions. Well, which I, I it, think I was I was going to say I was going to say that it like a lot of it doesn't read as an, exactly an endorsement of neoclassical economics, but then the conclusion kind of does, right? The the call to you know re- resuscitate this uh, trend towards or this this tendency towards market socialism from uh, neoclassical slash neoliberal economics does does read as an endorsement. Um, yeah, and also the the account of the origins of neoclassical economics at the start of the book is also pretty glowing, um, in a way that's probably not warranted. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some really weird stuff in this where, like, when when the author does quote like from neoclassical theory, you just get this really bizarre stuff, like um, presumptions of being able to, like the the, the what was it, the, re- the representative agent, and that the representative agent's preferences are strictly orderable and innumerable and can be ranked and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, what the fuck are these people on? Like, this is... And then then you get to the stuff later where it's like that kind of like, but but what is socialism? What is capitalism? Who knows? They're the same. They're not. Woo! And it's just kind of like... Yeah, it's like, oh, it would just be, you know, like a, a merely political thing to talk about the difference between capitalism and socialism. Whereas my scientific understanding of economy 
is you know just beyond all of that it's like well like you're just utterly delusional like yeah i'm um i'm glad we got onto that because um that's i think you can definitely see the genesis of those kind of apolitical quote apolitical um ideas or the the notion of politics as a dirty word right like um the hungarian economists who kind of suffered after the kind of reaction to the initial reforms were kind of driven underground a little bit and um they seem to have retreated into uh, more and more abstract models as a way of hiding from politics. And then that becomes this kind of thing of like insisting that like you can separate the economy from politics and that you can run the economy as a, as a technical thing without doing any political work. And it, 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 it's all these shades of what we know today as the kind of neoliberal consensus, right? The, that kind of dumb technocracy, the disavowal of real politics, the disavowal of ideology. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And like until recently, uh, you know, many neoliberals would say things like, um, I don't like the word uh, capitalism. I prefer the term market economy, right? And like that is fundamentally based in these discussions that happened in in you know the seventies and eighties, right? And and uh, like things like uh, I'm not I'm not a neoliberal. What is a neoliberal? I, I like how could you be a neoliberal? Like I'm just. I, I'm, I'm just a scientist, you know, like I, I'm just I'm just like solutions oriented, right? Like nah, the, these, these guys, <laughs> these kinds of ideas are like uh, really like pretty much like the worst bits of economics where it's like this kind of retreat into scientism uh, and like just hiding your political agenda behind uh, a lot of yeah like uh, it's, it's it's the disingenuity of it that fucking boils me yeah right? the kind of um like pretending to be neutral all this kind of stuff that fucking gets gets right on my nerves um yeah but that's it's it's, it's i think it's it's a lot like what we saw with uh, all watched over where it's useful to know that these ideas do have a genesis point um which means there was a time before they were held right and there will be a time after they're they're held hopefully like it's there is hope there right? yeah and i mean even like that whole thing about like i you know like i don't want to use the word capitalism or like uh you know like i i wouldn't consider myself a, a neoliberal or that kind of thing like i feel like that moment has passed and like the attack on neoliberalism has become sufficiently uh developed that uh, the people accused of it have started to uh, kind of like organize around um, a distinct political identity, which, you know, you could say, well, now now they're organized, now they're politicized, uh, now, now they're radicalized. But no, I mean, it, it just shows that there is actually a debate. Like, <laughs> there's sides to the argument. Yeah. Um, like it's it, having having any space for debate and change at all is a big step forward from where we are now. Um, and there there are positive signs, right? Like there are positive signs of kind of a revival of actual politics and a um, like an an end to the end of history, right? Like um, I know it's a theme we keep coming back to, but like it is it's all kind of relevant, right? That like. For the past whatever how many decades, um, we've been under the illusion that there are no there are no alternatives. There's no hope for further development. There's no hope for change. No, nothing's ever going to improve, or um, you know, nobody's station in life is ever going to improve. Uh, but 
Yeah, and I, I think that's the, the sort of core thing that we can see as, as different, right, in these, in these reform uh, periods and, and the discourse of these uh, neoclassical socialists uh, from uh, the Eastern Bloc is that the idea that there is no alternative was very foreign to them, right? Like they they were always thinking in terms of a plurality of alternatives, um, and so that uh, in itself is, is valuable. Like that that is like a real change that happened in the in the transition from uh, that earlier period into the nineties, uh, where it was yeah where the 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 sort of Thatcherite agenda did uh, win out, um, and. And markets became equated with capitalism, like insofar as as Bachman separates those two, I I am in agreement with her her argument. I just don't think we need to reason about markets in neoclassical terms. No, that's a dead end. <laughs> yeah, we should definitely do an episode on just just thrashing uh, neoclassical economics because um, <laughs> fruitful, yeah. um, definitely. Uh, and it, it is unfortunately still basically uh, the kind of de facto style of, of economics, which uh, says a lot about where we are, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I guess uh, it, for me, in conclusion, this was, this was a good read, if if long, you know, it, it, it is basically an academic work. Um, there's lots of citations, lots of detail. So it's kind of, it's kind of hard to recommend um, a direct reading unless you happen to be into the history of economics uh, or you have like an appetite for uh, academic reading. Um, yeah, it, it's a book that, you know, really could use a, a good, strong edit. Um, like it, it could it could be condensed down to a much shorter format with much uh, less repetition and sort of snappier uh, writing. But uh, what information is there may be of value to people if you want to go in there and, and pick things out or, or look at particular parts of the of the narrative that uh, may interest you or the footnotes yeah i think the the material is great like and it's it's definitely worth knowing and i kind of would rather see it reach a wider audience um like um i think that this would be an ideal sort of like um ideal as a much shorter kind of work that was less kind of fully cited but um and maybe, you know, people could actually know about it and know this history. Um, but that's not, that's, um, I want to be clear, it's not an indictment of the author um, or anything like it. It is clearly, it is, um, what's the thing with like films where there's like a reviewer who's like, uh, he measures the film according to what it's trying to achieve, not like by some absolute standard. Uh, Ebert. Right, Ebert, right. Like it's, um, is this film a success at what it's trying to do? And I think this book is a success at exactly what it's trying to do. So um, yeah, it's mm -hmm. good. Yeah. And, and hopefully we've we've managed on some level to uh, get across some of the core ideas in this episode and uh, and bring that to uh, people um, outside of academia. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've skipped a, we've a, skipped a lot of detail, but uh, there's far, there's too much detail to cover in an episode. Um, but we, we hit we hit the main points. It is tricky. It is certainly tricky. Um, yeah, and I, I took a lot of notes, uh, filled, filled quite a few pages trying to cram it all in. But um, yeah, is, is there anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap up? No, I think we pretty much covered it. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, I'm always interested to hear if uh, there's like feedback 
uh, from listeners in in those countries that were uh, subject to these adjustment programs. Um, you know, one of the the stories that really sort of still stands out for me. I, you know, recently there was the uh, the anniversary of the the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? That that came up, um, uh, and uh, there were sort of these um, recollections of of. Uh, that event and, and the aftermath uh, that were published all over the place. Um, and one was written by a guy who uh, went out into, uh, you know, the East uh, just as things were going down. And he was uh, struck by this one scene that he walked into where you would have um, even just like very poor people uh, trying to be entrepreneurs, right? Like trying to sell things, um, you know, like in, in a very unrealistic ways, right? Like, like people, because like, you know, the market for many of these countries, uh, was kind of a foreign, foreign and sort of fantastical concept. And it does show that the reform rhetoric um, had a lot of purchase with people down to a very popular level, right? Um, this this idea of sort of independence and uh, and like general sort of freedom and prosperity uh, did have purchase with people. Um, it's just that you know the reality was something as sad as like basically people getting out there and running lemonade stands expecting to make a living, you know. Like, <laughs> so it's like really, really tragic, uh, really sad stuff. And uh, and yeah, and, and, you know, if, if people have, have sort of stories to share about their experiences or thoughts, um, we're obviously, you know, foreign and pretty poorly informed compared to many others doesn't so, uh, stop us from making these shows, though, does it? Yeah, <laughs> at least I at least I hope we could. uh bring up a conversation and uh, get people thinking about this this episode of history that has largely been forgotten. Mm, yeah. Um, and yeah, if you want to reach out to us, we're on Twitter at GIUnitPod. Uh, we're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit. And um, if you've been enjoying the show, maybe think about heading on to uh, patreon.com slash General Intellect Unit and maybe throwing us a couple of bucks a month um, really helps with... Um, just expenses, books, books are expensive, um, beer is expensive, my kid's expensive. Um, <laughs> but no, any yes. any help at all is greatly appreciated. And um, who knows, maybe someday we could quit the day jobs and um, do this kind of stuff full time. Um, yes, we, we are our own entrepreneurs. Yeah, we can have our own <laughs> podcast lemonade stand. Yes, uh, uh, help us in forging a new path towards our glorious socialist entrepreneurialism. Mm -hmm. um, yes. <laughs> oh, wonderful. But um, in the meantime, um, we'll see you again in two weeks. And thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.